welcome to Monsters Lounge. I'm Jenny. And I'm Tressa. Oh, hello. Oh, oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Already we're talking over each other. (laughs) Tressa, I am so excited. So not only was our inaugural show uh, a little bit Bigfoot, but also our second show is extraordinarily Bigfoot. It's like this show is made for you. It it is. It's like it's like I I had a podcast and I talked about (laughs) stuff that I wanted to talk about. Wow. It's crazy. I know. We have a very special guest tonight. Uh, Not that all of our guests aren't special. They're all special. But this one is extra special. Uh, He is the curator of the North American Bigfoot Center. Um, He is the evidence analyzer for Finding Bigfoot. And he's also host of his own podcast, which is uh, Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. And you guys are going to need to buckle up because this one's a really good one. I can't wait. I know. Do you want to know who our guest is? I, I do. Yes, I think everyone does. Yeah. Cliff Barrickman. Oh, hello, Cliff. Hello. I was hoping to be Bobo, but, uh, you know, I'll settle for me. <laughs> uh, absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Bigfoot is very near and dear to my heart. I am not nearly uh, the accomplished researcher that, that you are. But it's not. always, always a big. We're all learners. Fan. At the end of the day, we're all learners. Um, I don't accept <laughs> that there's any experts in Bigfoot. There are some experts in the subject of Sasquatch, but not the animals themselves. We're all just kind of yeah. um, learning the best we can as we go. So. I say that, and then realize that you can't really be an expert in something that you haven't actually been able to physically study. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. Um, but. Yeah, I just I view myself as someone who just likes to learn about the subject and the animals in particular, um, and I'm just doing the best job I can. I, I may have a little bit more experience than some other people because I've been doing it. Uh, I, I realized just recently that 2024 is my 30th year of doing this. Um, wow. So, I mean, but that, it's just a longevity game, I guess, you know, so I'm a lifer. So That is amazing. So, so Tressa and I are going to be going to Portland this summer. Uh, for a Bigfoot Fest. And so we are going to be stopping by the museum. Oh, you should. It's a, it's a yeah. good time. Yeah. Uh, the North, North American Bigfoot Center. Um, can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about it? I was reading about it. The website is really nice. I'm a big fan of the website. but Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, the North American Bigfoot Center, um, it, it, on the surface, I guess it's a museum, right? But that's just the surface. I didn't call it the North American Bigfoot Museum specifically for this reason. Um, we have a threefold um, purpose, I guess. Um, the first is obviously to educate the public that Sasquatches are real animals. And that's, you know, that's a big part of the job. That's what the museum is for. Um, we get families coming by, obviously. It's kind of a tourism thing at the end of the day. But we're so much more than that. We're more, we're, we're, we're not a world's biggest ball of wax sort of place, even though I love those. Don't get me oh, wrong. Oh, for sure. They're um, the best. Yeah, we, we're a science museum about Sasquatches, about just educating the public that um, we're, they're real animals. And there you go. Not Nothing actually all that special about them, honestly. Um, the, second, um, the second thing that we're doing, we're trying to do there is to find and curate historical um, uh, artifacts and um, collections and preserve them and curate them because you know the first generation of Sasquatch researchers are pretty much all dead. And the second generation, you know, they're getting old too, honestly. Um, and what happens to their stuff? You know, can you imagine like your 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 uncle or, or your aunt or somebody dies? It's like, oh, Aunt Joyce was really into Bigfoot. Um, and this is all of her stuff, but Bigfoot's not real. You just, you just throw it out afterwards. Um, but Sasquatches are, in fact, real animals. 
And after um, their discovery, or at least I think their discovery is ongoing. I'm kind of with John Binder and I'll go about that one. But um, after their academic acceptance is a good way to say it. Um, all this pre-discovery stuff is, is going to be of great interest. You know, so um, we're trying to find these records before they're lost to time because so many researchers have, have already had their collection thrown away, essentially. And there's really interesting things of value in there. And I'm sorry, but then the last thing that we're doing is we're also trying to, um, I get a little long-winded, so I'm sorry about that. No, but you're the last fine. Thing we're doing is um, we are using contemporary and historical data to um, drive our own field research, um, which is, I think, an important aspect of what we're doing. We're out there in the woods. Um, we're generally out at least once a week, sometimes twice a week or more, um, doing our own field research. And so far, I will say that... Uh, by narrowing down my focus, instead of you know flying all over the U.S. doing the show or something like that, finding Bigfoot show, by narrowing my focus, we've been a very very successful um, so far. I think we cast, um, I, I think about about a dozen foot and handprint casts in December. You know, so um, wow. this the data driven um, the da data driven focus that we've really had here um, is turning out excellent results. Um, so I'm very, very pleased to, uh, to share with you that. So, so those are the three things. Educate the public, find and curate and protect historical um, collections, and then use data that comes to the shop to drive our own research. I got a couple questions. One, not so important, like how the historical stuff, do people contact you? Are you like seeking that out? Like if people have had this stuff in their family and they're I don't know, their offspring are like, we don't care. We're going to get rid of this. Do they contact oh, yeah. you? Or sometimes they do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sometimes they do. Like, for example, um, one of the the, the cooler uh, archival sort of collections we have is the Barbara Wasson collection. Um, Barbara Wasson was a very active field researcher throughout most of the early 1970s and probably a late, mid to middle-ish, late 80s. She wrote a book called Sasquatch Apparitions, and she was one of the only female researchers for a, like a long time. I mean, there was her, there was Joyce Kearney, and and I think that's about it, honestly. And they were in there with the Peter Burns and the Renee de Hindens and the, and the John Greens. They knew all those people and corresponded with them. I have the personal correspondences from Barbara to prove it. Um, so I have her entire research collection, or at least what's left of it. And um, like her daughter reached out to me years ago um, because she had some extra copies of her of her mom's book when she passed away. And so I, I purchased those from her, you know, and I thought they were great little historical things. But this is before the museum idea was even a seed in my head. Um, but then later on, um, her son reached out to me because she he heard about it from his sister that, oh, yeah, Cliff is sometimes interested in historical things. Um, so that one came to me. Uh, I don't know if you know who Paul Freeman is. He's one of the most successful Bigfoot researchers, field guys out there. Um, he cast quite a few footprints. His daughter actually reached out to me and um and, and arranged to have the um, his field research map um, brought to the museum. Um, and now Michael Freeman, um, Paul's son, um, uh, he's a good friend of mine and he's given us some artifacts. And yeah, people, people know that I'm interested, I think people know that I'm interested in the historical part of this. And I guess that um, some people who have these things uh, trust me to do what's right with them. Because I mean, they're not—they're not monetarily valuable. That's not what—that's not where their value comes from. They're historically valuable, and um, I guess people—and I'm thankful that people um, trust me to to curate them 
um, long after their parents many times have passed away. So it's, it's an honor, really. It's an honor and a privilege. And it's not one that I take uh, lightly at all. Um, we have long-term goals actually at the museum to eventually make an online archive. So these things mm. will be uh, available to the public um, mm. uh, and housed in a, um, a nonprofit. Uh, right now, the uh, an LLC owns them right now, but hopefully they're, eventually they're going to end up in a nonprofit, especially like all my collection will be passed on to this as well, because, you know, I've got a big collection now of my own stuff, let alone yeah. people like Barbara Wasson. I, we have the end of Dr. Leroy Fish, Fish's collection. Um, and of course, he's uh, the, the the biologist that was part owner of the Skookum cast. Um, we have uh, Chuck Edmonds collection. Um, he was a Bigfoot and UFO researcher in the very early 1960s. Um, he was famous for a small number of pretty nerdy niche things that I could tell you about. Um, yeah, so the list goes on and on. We're 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 getting quite a collection, and we have great uh, plans of what we're going to do with them. Now, That's I love amazing. this idea, um, and and I loved looking through through the website, which is why you know I mention it is is doing any kind of like research or just just on a you know, as, as a hobby, as like a side thing, interests of mine, you know, it's, it's difficult to find a database of, you know, sightings and listings and, and just kind of laid out with like the stories. And I like the idea of, of the preserve preservation of the history, because you got to look in 15,000 different places if you're going to look for it online. Yeah, everybody and their mother has a sighting data, database now. I mean, I have twelve or 1,500 sightings of my own in my own database. But, yeah. I mean, Moneymaker at the BFRO, he does a way better job than I would do at that. So I just let him, you know, he can do that. Um, I've got my own interests. Um, on my personal website, which is just my name, cliffberrickman.com, I have a, um, a footprint cast data or footprint most of them are cats. Some of them are just impressions in the ground. A footprint database, which is the only one of its kind. Um, but I hope to expand on that and get some three-dimensional modeling going on. Because I'm also the owner of, I think it's safe to say now that legitimately I have the largest footprint cast collection in the world. Um, and I want to make those available for, especially for academics throughout the world. And the only way to really do that is by doing 3D scanning and getting those up on an archive. And so I think it's a tremendous amount of work. Uh, I will perpetually be behind probably until the day I die or past that. Um, but I, those are my hopes and goals is to uh, give something back. Because again, I know, I mean, the animals are real. That's the bottom line. They are actually really there. Um, so what, what good can I do, especially for them, you know? It's not about me. It's not about, about my legacy or, you know, Cliff. It's not about me at all. I wish I could take me out of it, honestly. Um, but it's about them. And I want to try to give something back, I guess, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You you have, now you're, I know that you are, a, this is a real animal, like a flesh and blood kind of thing. And I was reading through um, some of your articles and I've read some things that you've said that are highly interesting and also things that, that should have occurred to me, but didn't, um, such as where are the bodies? And you compare it in an article to bears and in finding like dead bears. Can you tell us a little bit about that theory? Well, yeah, yeah. People say if they're real, where the where the bones? And my response, well, bears are real, where their bones, right? Um, because you don't we don't find naturally dead bear bones. Um, and the key word there is naturally dead. 
you do find poached bears, you do find um, roadkill bears and things like that, but not naturally dead because bears um, like mountain lions or say uh, Sasquatches or they are um, apex predators. Nothing hunts and kills them for food like, you know, rabbits or deer or elk or anything like that. Those animals, the prey animals, they don't get to choose where they die. Um, whereas uh, apex predator animals, they literally choose where they're going to die. They just don't know they're going to die is the thing. They get they get sick and then they probably hide themselves away somewhere just like we would do because we're vulnerable during those times. Uh, and it's a harsh world out there in the woods, you know, so they hide themselves away in some far flung corner under a rock somewhere. Um, and then one day they die instead of getting better like they have every other time in their life. And uh, so they literally started by hiding their bones, whether they intended, they certainly didn't intend to, you know, but the, functionally they hid their bones. And then within a few hours to a few days, scavengers would move in and start eating away the flesh. The hair is eaten by moths, it turns out. Um, bone or like the body parts would be scattered, you know, like a, a coyote might bring the leg over there, a bear might bring it, an arm over there or something like that. And then, um, the, so the flesh will be eaten away very quickly. And bones, it turns out, are, are a very good source of calcium, obviously. Um, so pretty much everything out there eats bones. Um, porcupines are notorious for eating bones. Wood rats, uh, the, the most plentiful animal in North American forests by biomass, the deer mouse eat bones. Um, coyotes eat bones, bears eat bones, deer and elk eat bones. Um, that's where they get the calcium for their antlers. Um, everything out there eats bones. Um, so and it, so the, the body is basically recycled very, very quickly. Um, but on top of that, you have to consider the rarity of the species as well. Sasquatches are probably amongst, well, maybe the, but certainly amongst the most rare animals in North American forests, um, especially large animals. We suspect, we, we being the Bigfoot community or whatever, that there's probably 100, maybe 200 bears for every one Bigfoot. Okay. Now, in my state of Oregon, um, there's about three, there's about 30,000, maybe 35,000 bears here in Oregon. That means there's about 300 Bigfoot or 350 Bigfoot, maybe. Um, not that many, really. And of course, bears live kind of like dogs do in a way. They, they live as long as dogs do, about you know, 12 to 17 years, maybe in the in the wild. I don't know. I'm not assured that that number, but it's somewhere in there, I'm confident. Sasquatches being primates, being great apes like humans and uh, gorillas and stuff, they almost certainly live 40, 50 years or so out in the wild. Um, and there's actually a biological rule that the name escapes me, but the larger animals tend to live a little longer. You know, it's, I know it's not true of dog breeds, but it's true of things like cetaceans, where whales live a lot longer than uh, than uh, dolphins do. I mean, there's some whales out there that are 250 years old, for example. Yeah. Um, Sasquatches might live as late as 50 or 60 years old. We don't know. We have no idea, of course. Um, but just 50 years, you know, if there's 300 of these things, you know, and they live 50 years, I mean, what is, I mean, what's rough math? Is that six every year die in Oregon or something like that at the most. I don't know. I don't know yeah. the math. So, someone yeah. smart than me can figure it out. But <laughs> yeah. basically not very many of these animals are dying every year. Um, right. So you have to consider that as well. So yeah, you're not going to almost certainly not going to find a naturally dead body. I mean, it's possible, but it's uh, extraordinarily unlikely, especially since you don't find bears, you don't find mountain lions or, you know, yeah. There you it go. Yeah, it didn't resonate with me until I started thinking about, you know, because we're, uh, Tristan and I are both like in the middle of Illinois, you know, we don't have like bears running around and, and whatnot. But I started thinking uh -huh. about deer, right? I spent a huge amount of my childhood, Sorry. no worries, huge amount of my childhood in the forest, like, you know, in, in the Midwest. And there's deer everywhere, yep. everywhere, all over the place. And they're prey quite often. Yeah. But 
I've run across maybe two, three deer skeletons in, in my years of being in the woods. And I applied that to this thought and it just smacked me in the head like, oh, well, that's duh. Well, even just like the hiding when they're not feeling great, like if you have a pet that's maybe not doing great, that's what they do. They hide. And it never occurred to me to said it till just now. And I'm like, right? oh, my God. Yeah. Well, so sure. think about Sasquatches, since they are perfectly normal animals, all of these good questions like where are the bones, they have perfectly normal answers. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's like you're I, I always think about like the the smallest chance you know, explanation for it. And that's, that's not the case. No, um, no. Another article that you have, and I love this concept uh, because it was one of the reasons given for the Dyatlov Pass incident, which a bunch of hikers, you know, uh, met. Yeah, that was, that was a hoax, by the way. I hope you know that. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Popping my bubble. But one of the explanations <laughs> they were talking about was infrasound. And knowing that this is a thing that occurs, and then we were talking to Greg Lawson last week about um, a, the the village in Alaska, Portlock. Portlock, yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the, in the research, one of the explanations given for that was also infrasound. So I was delighted to find an article that you had written of the actual biological mechanism and reasoning for infrasound was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit because yeah yeah I think, I think it's, fascinated. it's very reasonable i think to expect sasquatches to use infrasound for a variety of purposes um infrasonic frequencies are well known from many other large mammals elephants um and outside the mammals too uh, um you know um alligators have it for example but tigers um they have infrasonic frequencies in their roar and um you know the navy back in i think it was the 60s might have been the 50s you know kind of a weird mk ultra thing they were doing um experiments on humans um to see what um high amplitude uh infrasound would do to them um that's where like this this the myth of the brown note happened you know that south park did a whole episode on it right where <laughs> yeah, supposedly this yeah. this high intensity um infrasonic frequency will make you poop your pants um it turns yeah. out it's not really true but um mm -hmm. but it's still funny it's a great south park episode and yeah. uh and so they were they were doing experiments to see how these affect people and some of the effects were like um, nausea dizziness being disoriented uh brief paralysis stuff like that um and you know we see that sort of thing sometimes in Sasquatch reports. Um, John Bindernagel, Dr. John Bindernagel, who's passed now, unfortunately, but he was a biologist, a field biologist. And um, in his book, uh, Sasquatch, North American Grade Ape, um, he wrote a, uh, a brief thing about infrasonic frequencies and noted that a, at least one sighting report, this is from John Green's database, uh, has a hunter, like maybe in a tree stand or something, and he saw a Sasquatch scream at a deer um, and then walk up and basically snap his neck and throw it over his shoulder and walk away. The deer didn't resist. So there's some, that's some suggestion that maybe they are using something to that effect because tigers have infrasonic frequencies in their roars that serve to um, briefly confuse and paralyze their prey. So yeah, it's entirely possible that Sasquatches have something like that as well. And also when you look at the environment in which Sasquatches live, um, infrasonic frequencies would be very, very useful for them because um, infrasonic frequencies are not absorbed by trees, um, whereas high fire frequencies are. Trees act like a sponge to all that sort of sound. 
but um, also you can feel it through the ground. In fact, it passes through the ground. So a, theoretically, a Sasquatch on one side of a mountain can make noise and be heard on the other side of the mountain just by the sound waves going through the mountain. So we don't know any of this is true, but it's an interesting thought exercise. Um, and of course, there are some you know data points that suggest that yeah, they might be using those sort of things, especially that idea where I'm sure if you have if you dipped your toes into the Bigfoot um, sighting report stuff at all, you've read several reports where the um, witness was uh, uh, was perhaps aware that something was off before they saw the Sasquatch. You know the hair raised yeah. on the back of their neck or they got scared or, you know, something like that. Um, and of course I've also spoken, I've, I've spoken to a lot of witnesses now, but um, several of the witnesses I've spoken to have been yelled at these, by these things um, nearby. Um, they said they could feel it in their body cavity rumbling. And that, that's another suggestion. I think that these things are in fact using infrasound. Well, yeah, you get reports of the, of the infrasound and, and the effect that it has on us. And it's, it's all of these things. It's disorienting. Uh, it's, you know, confusing, like you feel it through your whole body, like, like it's almost like a, another sense of something. Yeah, you feel it, right. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, also, I'm not getting away from this, from, from how serious I'm taking the subject, but the idea of just a little Bigfoot walking up and just screaming in somebody's face is a little bit amusing to me. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be an interesting question to see if the little ones, if, if Sasquatches do yeah. end up having infrasonic yeah. usage, you know, could the little ones do it, or do you need a big body cavity? I know there's a lot of questions that go with this. I, I don't yeah. really know about it, so. exactly. Or is it a, like a learned thing, and then you like something that you have to learn how to use? That's yeah, I don't know. It's like, I like, really love the idea of stunning somebody with like I. I'm very sensitive to sound. It, yeah. it just the slightest thing will like take me out. I can't deal with it. And the fact that anyone else can experience that from something else, and it's a very natural and it happens in nature everywhere. Mm -hmm. I love that. So much. yeah, it does. That, that's, that's part of the, um, um, the difficulty with figuring out if Sasquatches are using it because there are infrasonic frequencies all around us. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, the ocean emits them all the time. Um, volcanism. So like rocks moving underground and that sort of stuff. avalanches are, are a good source of um, uh, infrasonic frequencies. And of course you can't just, not, not every um, microphone or recorder can even record them because it turns out it makes sense that the, the sound um, technicians don't tend to make microphones for sounds that humans can't hear. Right. Oh, it makes weird. sense. Yeah, so um, there's there's it, there's a whole you know just a whole array of challenges involved in um, finding out if Sasquatches use infrasound. Mm -hmm. But to my knowledge, um, no no thorough survey or any survey at all has been done of North American animals that use infrasound. So it, it's it's rife for um, any sort of a you know PhD student who's looking for something cool. Oh, absolutely, because you don't hear about it a lot. You know, I mean, it was just very recently that that I learned of the connection between them and and elephants, right? You know, um, and and how elephant herds are able to communicate over over long distances. You know, yeah, five to seven miles, and I they mean, feel the vibration in their big, big padded feet, which is mm -hmm. another Sasquatch thing. Sasquatches have large padded feet, um, and uh, they maybe that's how they do that too. We don't know. There's just so many interesting correlations and possibilities out there. Oh yeah, it just captures the imagination, and and you just go wild with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think break. Oh, good point. Let's take a break. <laughs> oh, we're back. 
Oh, oh that was fast. Nice. Yes, it's like almost no time passed at all. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's a so supernatural podcast. We we time travel a little bit sometimes. It's fine. <laughs> so I have I have some questions too because one of the things that I like so much about the field of any kind of cryptozoology is thinking about the environment and how things may have evolved to fit within that environment. Um, you know, and there's there's uh, reports of the smaller species, I guess one would say, of Sasquatch. Um, and you took a trip to Sumatra, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. To to study the Otang? No, the Orang Pendek. The Orang Otang is a local name for, of, of, of an unknown hominoid of some sort that lives in South Africa. But in, in um, Sumatra, they have um, persistent reports of bipedal apes um, between three and five feet tall that they call uh, Orang Pendek, which is a um, Orang means man in um, in Indonesian. That's why that's where the word orangutan comes from. Orangutan. Um, orang means man, and utan means forest. So orangutans are actually forest men. That's what they call them. Um, mm -hmm. But orang pendek is a short man because they're little, essentially. And on the on one side of the island, um, away from Kerinci National Park, where, which is kind of the epicenter for the, a lot of the orang pendek stuff, it, there's another unknown species. Um, that is represented by a very small number of footprints and a few, a very small number of sighting reports. Almost no one has ever written anything about these. Um, it's called the Orang Gadang, which means big man, essentially. And these aren't even reported to be Sasquatch size. They're reported to be somewhere about five, maybe six feet tall. But um, it, it's, it's possible that these are an entirely different species. We don't really know. So looking at, looking at it from like an evolution sort of standpoint, um, are we thinking that they are more like primates that have descended down and sort of adapted to the environment that they're in? Is that why the reports of like the Yeti, where they're just massive and like a big no, That's animal. not true, the Yeti, though. That's not true, though. Um, there are three forms that are uh, that are described with the word Yeti in the, in the Himalayas. Okay. One is a large Sasquatch-like animal, um, seven, eight feet tall. Um, I've personally spoken to witnesses in Nepal that have seen these things. Um, there's another form um, that is a smaller form, um, generally five feet tall, give or take. And it's it's really best represented by the McNeely Cronin footprints, I believe was the name. In early 71, um, mountaineers found these footprints and it had uh, 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 an abducted hallux. The hallux is the big toe. Abducted means off to the side, like your thumb. Where Sasquatches have a adducted hallux, like a human, the big toe in line with the rest of them. Um, and we assume that the larger Yeti species probably has that as well, although it's, there are no known... Well, no, there is a footprint. There is a footprint, actually, of it. And yeah, so it has an adducted hallux, like a human does. But um, there's another whole species of animal that they call Yeti there that is some sort of ape, much more ape-like, I guess. Um, and it has an ad, abducted hallux, like a, a toe going off to the side. Um, and that one is quite small, you know, four, five, six feet tall, somewhere in there. So um, to, just to set the record straight, you know, so. No, yeah, my yeah, mind absolutely. is blown because I'll- And there, by the way, there's a third form of Yeti. I might as well say that too. I did say yeah, that. Yeah, please. All along, I've been wandering around thinking that there that was third, just that, this one. <laughs> no, no, no. That thir the third form of Yeti um, has some unfortunate fallout um, because of it. Um, it's, it's essentially a, a brown bear. And we all know it's a brown bear. And um, they call those things Yeti too. Because uh, the Yeti is, is kind of like a... Um, 
there's a loose translation from the local tongues means like uh, um, that thing, that man-like thing over there, you know? So that's what Yeti kind of translates into. And when, when bears stand up there, well, that's, that's a Yeti. Um, but um, I don't know if you remember, but um, Dr. Brian Sykes, who's a world renowned geneticist, he did a series, he wrote a book um, and then he did a series of specials on Nat Geo um, where he was doing DNA analyses on a variety of things. And one of the things he did is that he, uh, he tested some supposed Yeti hair and it came back as bear. And that was the headline. Yetis are bears too bad, everybody. But he got the bear, he got the hair off of a bear pelt, you know, of course it's going to be a bear. We all knew it was going to be a bear, but that's not what Matt Geo put out as the headline. Um, they put the headline out being very d d misleading to say the very least. Um, and I thought the whole Brian Sykes thing was a huge missed opportunity. And, um, almost almost uh, just i'll say misleading to be kind um but uh um it did some damage to the subject unfortunately but again if brian sykes dr brian sykes who's now passed so i'm not going to slam the dead guy if he had done his research appropriately like i would expect any other phd to do he would have known that there were three forms of the yeti and one of them is indeed a brown bear which is the kind of hair that he tested and lo and behold he got brown bear as the result so well, first of all, I want to say thank you for um, saying that the PhD candidate uh, should have known about the three different forms of Yeti. And, you know, that excuses me because I'm not the <laughs> PhD candidate. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just the way I feel. If you're going to go out on the limb and you're going to work in that geo, you should probably do your homework. You know, like yeah. if you're going to yeah. Nepal, read the, Leti read the Yeti literature, you know. I, so feel, like, I feel like that's completely accurate. Um but the way that these d develop ge geographically, does that make sense to you? Like the well, yeah, yeah, sure. But that's true of everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we are all even, even, even the fruit flies are the winners of our um, evolutionary race so far. You know, so everything has adapted to their appropriate environments, essentially. And um, so, if we look at relic hominoids, which is the term you're looking for, you said Sasquatches, but Sasquatches are specifically North America. Um, yeah. So, if we look at relic hominoids, which is the term that we're kind of moving on into at this point, and relic is a biological term that means still surviving in small numbers, even though their populations were probably more widespread at one time. And a hominoid is a term that basically means a human shaped thing, right? So relict hominoid. Um, you see, um, when you look at human ancestors and, uh, and the other apes as well, even if we're not directly related to them in, in, the sort of, in that sort of way, um, all, of the, all of the known species of apes right now are relic species. There, I think there's five different species. There's uh, bonobos, chimps, uh, orangutans, gorillas, humans, and that's pretty much it. Uh, gibbons are a lesser ape, but they're apes nonetheless. Um, there used to be hundreds of species of apes, hundreds of them. Yeah. Okay. And they're all they're all gone now. Then it turns out that the only species that are left happen to all be tropical, but that wasn't always the case. There were you know temperate apes everywhere in the world at one time. Um, and so who's to say that all of those species, whether they're an ape species or a uh, human ancestor, what we call a hominin? Who's to say all of those have died out, okay? I argue that they haven't. I argue that there's at least a couple forms still in existence. Um, and all of them have uh, have persisted in their ecological niche and been pretty successful at it, I think. Um, when you look at Sumatra, you were talking about the Orang Pendek. Mm -hmm. It is smaller, 
And it is known that uh, there's something called island dwarfism, where if you live on an island long enough, your species tends to get smaller. Like uh, the mammoths, for example, that lived on the Channel Islands in Southern California, they were quite small, um, it, even in, in spite of their name mammoth, which means large. Um, and it, people thought for a long, well, let's, let's, here you go. This is a great example. Let's look at um, Homo floresiensis, which was that hobbit species that was discovered yes. in 2004, for example. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was discovered on the island of Flores. I'm really just excited few, about that. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm also a fan of paleoanthropology. Um, that was discovered on the island of Flores, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the island of Flores, to this day, has persistent stories from the native local people there of small, hair-covered, human-like things in the woods. Um, on one side of the island, they're called Ibugogo. And on the other side of the island, oh, what is it? I can't remember the name they they call them, but a guy named Dr. Gregory Forth has written um, an excellent book called, uh, um, is it Almost Human? No, I forget. I forget what the name of the book is. Gosh darn it. Um, if I didn't have a power outage and we were in my office, I could <laughs> off the shelf, but I can't. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can tell, but it's dark here. I've, I've got no power for four days now, so you're lucky to have me at all. And you're here, um, so thank you so much. I know. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, Dr. Gregory Forth is arguing that these things are still there because he knows witnesses who have seen them quite recently. Um, and that's just the island of Flores, which is a hop, skip, and a jump from Sumatra. Um, for, and and well, anyway, Homo floresiensis um, for a while was thought to be a Homo erectus with island dwarfism. But now there's actually too many differences, and there's reasonable um, idea to speculate that these things are actually Australopithecines um, or, or something at least more ar archaic, I think is a good term for that. Um, something in terms of Homo habilis or even earlier, which would be Australopithecines, um, which is super, super interesting because that would be the first known example of an Australopithecine radiating out of Africa, you know, which would be mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, but anyway, they, it turns out, no, they're not, they're not Homo erectus with island dwarfism, although that was a reasonable guess at first because the type specimen, the holotype, the very, very first known sample of um, Homo erectus was from Java. They called it Java Man, which is right there. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, I, don't, I don't think that Orang Pendex are Homo floresiensis. I think Ubugogos probably are. But um, Orang Pendex, you see, I sponsored a, a project um, back when I had a little extra money. Um, yeah, when, when I was on Finding Bigfoot, I was having TV money. I had a little extra cash. So <laughs> I, sponsored, um, I sponsored a project in Sumatra with local investigators to try to get footprints, um, footprint casts of Orang Pendex. And um, I got quite a few casts, although it turns out that some of them are, are absolutely fake because uh, it's a long story. Um, some of my contacts that were paying witnesses and that always leads to hoaxing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was, I did not direct them to do that. They were doing that without me knowing for a while, but I caught on and figured it out. But nonetheless, despite that, out of the maybe 40 casts that um, I have from Sumatra, I think a small number of them are actually real, you know, which is really interesting. And if they, if they are in fact real, they are not homo floresiensis because the foot structure has that abducted hallux. It has the toe going out to the side. Um, which is super interesting because the Orangadang, the big one on the other side of Sumatra, also has that same feature, as does the Yeti, one of those Yeti forms that I mentioned. Could it be that um, that is it, it is perhaps a, a ground-dwelling orangutan, which we know existed, by the way, in that place, and um, not that long ago in the geologic record. Could it be that that is actually persisting in small pockets um, not far from its historical record to this present day? And maybe all of those things, 
maybe an orang pendek is a short, a smaller version of the orangutan, and the yeti and the orangutan are the same form. I don't know. There's so many questions, and as you can tell, I've, I've you got me all riled up, and I'm <laughs> talking about all these ideas now. So, no, yeah, there's absolutely. so much to learn. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating because now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, well, how many of these sightings are like our relics or or species that we thought had gone gone extinct? And then how oh, many are are yeah. are things that we never knew were there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing too. Like, cause um, you know, when you look at um you know, um Ivan Sanderson's book, um, the Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, which is kind of one of the first books ever written on the subject. Um he is now kind of getting his 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 due because he he wrote about all these different forms from all over the planet, and at the end of the day, um, he's kind of being proven right through this idea of relic hominoids because the Almasty of Eastern Europe is not the Sasquatch of North America, which is not the Ibogogo of Flores, which is not the Sumatra, uh, you know, the Rain Pendek of Sumatra. So I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I hear my generator. I really hope I don't lose power right now. I might be running Ooh. out of gas. Oh, oh, kind of getting darker and if it does run out of gas. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to like check out for a second, go fill it up, and be and try to log back on because my internet's yeah. gonna go out. Don't worry about oh, wow. it. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much information that is happening in my brain right now. I'm not the Bigfoot uh, Yeti Sasquatch lady. That's that's Jenny. Uh, I I don't know a lot about any of this, and it never. It should have because it's so obvious, but it, oh, there he goes. I'll just keep talking though. Yeah. It never really occurred to me that uh, there were on different continents, different countries, whatever. These are all different species. Yeah. Like, it's so obvious. Yeah, of course they the are. Reports, the reports and they're consistent too is the thing mm -hmm. is when you look at some of like the indigenous people's like descriptions or drawings or whatever, um, you know, you you see the consistency in the geographical area, um, which is crazy. But yeah, they're all different, different flavors, I guess, of of. And short ones, that's not, that's not a thing that in my head. That, that's a whole new ball of Well, life. think about it. I mean, over the past, like, however many years, uh, I if I did math, I would be able to do math. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. Hang on, because he's calling right now. Okay. Okay. Folks, I'm not cutting any of this out. Uh, enjoy ah! the mess <laughs> that is a winter 2024. Hello. Ooh. Thank you. But, you know, because I'm single track sort of mind i mean uh -huh. think about it in this way like there's now we went from when you were in school if you can remember like back to first the learning 40s. about early man right mm -hmm. neanderthals there were only like three or four right different species of and the missing link you know yeah humanoid that you can think of but there's eight now right and, yeah uh, and they discover these things like like the the hobbit because i'm there's no way i'm going to be able to pronounce the actual name of it i've tried it a thousand times it starts with what an is f. it Len? homo f yeah homo f <laughs> that guy the hobbit so i mean it wasn't discovered okay. until incredibly recently you know right. I mean, it was it was in the 2000s and it's not the only one there's been a couple that have been only discovered in the 2000s look at the silicanth the fish that that went extinct right, right. and then that and then they tribe found was it. just eating it yeah I just mean, like oh yeah we got these things all the time they're great <laughs> 
Try it with lemon. <laughs> but that, I mean, the ocean, that's a whole other story where no yes. one has explored it at all. And everything is probably still there and just hiding. That's my theory. Yeah. But then, I mean, forests, gigantic miles and acres and uh, whatever. That's the same as the ocean, as far as I'm concerned. It's just never ending and just scary. And you'll get lost if you try and go in there. Yeah. You'll see when we go to Washington. <laughs> What are you? You will do not to get me? lost. You will not get lost. But do you promise? You step, I promise you. I promise. I will not. I will tie a belt to That's you. My, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'll find my way out. Well, I'll find you and lead you out. Is what I'm saying. With the what belt. if you get lost? Well, it. I won't get lost. Listen. All I'm saying mm-hmm. is that when you go into some of these national parks, and you go. I mean, legally, you do not go off the path because you're not supposed to. But if you happen to accidentally wander a little bit off the path, Uh like it's a whole different world. Like you don't know where you're going. You're back in. Yeah, you're almost lost if you if you wander away. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. I got her to sing. Yeah. Don't cut out the part where I'm singing. Nope. Absolutely not. (laughs) Keep that in. It's imperative. But yeah, it's fascinating to think about all of these different, you know, I don't know if you remember the rant that I went on with sirens and this is not, or mermaids, and this is not scientific whatsoever, but there is a theory Uh that at one point in time, Mm -hmm. our ancestors, one of those little branches went right on back to the ocean and they're like, I don't like this land thing. We're going back to the sea. Screw capitalism. Yeah. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Valid. I yeah. get it. Yeah. They 100%. escaped the Neanderthal economics and they went back to the ocean and developed gills and, and all of those things again, which you get some of these horrific, you know, reports of sightings because they would have adapted to their environment. Listen, until Cliff gets back, let's talk about mermaids. Have you seen the mermaid videos? They are wild. I don't. Yes. They're gross. They're no, yeah, they're not hot like manatees. They're not going to be hot like manatees. Captain Cook would want none of them, (laughs) none of that business. Uh, And they adapt to the environment, they would need to be a predator, so they would need to have teeth. Okay, let me posit a question to you. Yeah, Columbus was he doing it with manatees or actual mermaids? I think Columbus was up for whatever. Yeah, he totally was. He was like, man, these mermaids have cake. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't think. (laughs) And then all the sailors were like, oh, that's not a mermaid, bro. (laughs) Don't do that. That's gross. And he's like, no, mermaids. Yeah, I think that there's something not right in your brain if you're coming over (laughs) and you're like, oh, Oh. this, this habitable, you know, place that is already populated. We're just going to call it ours now. There's something yeah. wrong with you to begin with. So these sea cows are mermaids. They're not as hot as I thought they would be. I mean, but they're suitable. Yeah. If your if your goal is going to be, I'm going to wipe out the original people here. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong. So I could make the connection to them being doing stupid. the doing the sea cow. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't help when I call them sea cows. <laughs> I will, however. Back him up on the ocean UFOs that he watched go in and out of the ocean on the way back and whatever. That's the only thing I'll back him up on. That's it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he's a dumb, dumb idiot. 
That's fair. Anyway, back to Sasquatch. I mean, <laughs> and these things wandering around in some of these national parks. Teddy Roosevelt, he mm-hmm. was a believer. He had reports. Yes. Of Sasquatch. He, he had multiple, didn't he? Yes. Yes. And he started our whole park system. Solely to do Papa this. Papa Roos is what I call him. <laughs> do you really? <laughs> I do. Papa As of Roos. right now or previously? No, well. right now. Right now, that was the decision I just made. I I support that and yeah. I enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Good old Papa Ruse. Let's talk about that sound stuff. Yeah, infrasound. Yeah. The fascinating thing with that, especially with the elephants, is they're so smart. There are so many reports of elephants, first of all, just doing jerk things, which is great yeah. because it's always like out of vengeance and more power right. to them. When they all showed up to that woman's funeral who had hurt an elephant and they were like, we're not done with you. I know. Yeah. No, like we're not done. Yes. We, are, we, we are doing that. We have more to go. What you got before mm-hmm. was nothing. nothing. That was us lightly patting you on the head. Now, now that you're past. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, there's sweet heartwarming stories about the elephants, too. Like one of uh, there was a guy who worked for a rescue. Hello. Hi. We started talking about it. You missed the part where we talked about mermaids, but you came back just in time for elephants. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Good. <laughs> but it, where were we? Bigfoot, Bigfoot, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was right exactly. about there. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was saying something that doesn't matter. So, Jenny, do you have a question? I don't know. Oh, me too. <laughs> I, I have so many questions. Well, what we were talking about while you were gone was the different species of this creature. I can't even say like Bigfoot, but I'm going to use the overarching term of Bigfoot for for all of these different species who are all in these different areas. And, um, you know, it makes absolute sense, especially when you look at uh, ancient humanoids and they're discovering new ones like the hobbit that they just discovered and we went from i don't know i remember three or four when i was in high school and now there's eight there's a lot you know and um just last couple years i mean this is really the golden age of paleoanthropology um it really is uh if i had you know if i wasn't an old man already and i'd go back to school or something like that i would probably almost certainly major in paleoanthropology because human ancestors ancestors are just so fascinating and so interesting and of course, you know, I'm really into the Bigfoot thing. It makes perfect sense for me to do that. Um, um, but just in the last few years, I mean, so you had two species the, um, described in journals last a year ago, July. Um, there was one just recently, last couple of months too. But last July, there were two species um, uh, discovered, if you want to say that, uh, described is a better term. Um, I forget the name of one, but one was from Israel and the other one um, was from nearby. That one got, all, one of them got all the all the attention because that has a sexy name. They called it Dragon Man, right? Um, it, was, it was Homo Longi. It was Dragon Man. And so like that one got all the press, you know, because it's so cool. The other one kind of got lost in the shuffle there, but I think that's equally cool. And of course, be, before that, it was um, a year and a half before that. I think it was in May of 2000. 20 may i don't know don't quote me on that my i got a really weird elastic sense of time you know but um yeah but uh homo luzonensis was discovered that was a small um species of human discovered in the philippines 
Um, and again, it was like the orang pin deck in a way. In fact, they, it was about three feet tall, three or four feet tall. And they actually thought it might be an orang pin, not an orang pin deck, a homo, uh, homo floresiensis, a hobbit species, you know. Uh, they thought it might be one of those for a moment, but it turns out there's different enough that it's its own species, which is really cool. Um, yeah, and of course, there's uh, Homo naledi um, from South Africa. It was discovered not that long ago, and, and all this was kicked off by Homo floresiensis on Flores. It's a really fascinating time to be interested in paleoanthropology. Um, and even now, with all these new discoveries, we probably know about one and a half percent of all the species that have ever lived. Yeah. You know? How cool is that? It's very yeah. cool. Why do you think that we're finding so many so rapidly in the past decade or so? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it has something to do with the way we're looking. You know, yeah. I think the the stuff. You know, um, you know, you look at the leakies. Um, the leakies were basically working a couple different spots in Eastern Africa, and so you got a lot of the the African species, like um, you know. Um, uh, Paranthropus was a, that's a genus, but you know, and, and like the the Australopithecines, Australopithecus afarensis, and and Africanus, and all those, and so those were the areas that they were working, and they got a lot of those things, you know. Um, so I think maybe they're trying these things in different areas. You know, wow. I don't I don't really know why we're doing so much better now, but it certainly has something to do with just the maturity of the science itself and the techniques that they're using. Because um, remember, um, we didn't know about any human ancestors until like the middle of the 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't know about any of them. I think Neanderthals were the first ones that discovered and they thought those were humans for a long time with like some sort of uh, with like uh, rickets, if I remember right. Um, there's yeah. a wonderful book by Ian Tattersall, who's uh, head of the paleoanthropology department, I think at the New York Natural History Museum. Fascinating book. He's a great author. And um, he, there's a book called The Case of the Rickety Cossack. Um, and uh, and a Cossack is a, is a you know, ethnicity of person in, in Europe or, at, or mm -hmm. in Asia somewhere. And rickety means they had rickets. Because when the, the first uh, Neanderthal skeleton, they thought they had rickets because it was so different than humans, you know. Um, and, and then he goes through a, a, a brief history of paleoanthropological discoveries. And you realize, holy smokes, um, not only is, is this really, you know, twisted tale that's worthy of documentation, but um, there's also relatively little. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was... A friend of mine, a guy named Dr. Isaac Tian, he, uh, if, if you, I sometimes work on a show called Proof is Out There. And a couple of years ago, that show did a Bigfoot special and they, they used some AI techniques to clean up the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, Isaac was the guy who did that, you know, so he, he's a legit scientist. He's a PhD now. Um, he and I were talking, we were on expedition a few months ago in the Blue Mountains. And he was telling me that he took a couple, of, he, his, he's a computer nerd for a living, but um, he, uh, um, took a couple of uh, paleoanthropology classes because he, like me, is also very interested in that. And he said that there are so few good examples um, uh, of human ancestors that um, he had to memorize all of them for his class. That's how few there are. That like you, you can actually memorize every single specimen for your class. Um, oh, wow. And it's not, it's not a ridiculous thing to ask. Um, that's how few there are. And we're talking like nice cranium and things like that. You know, there's lots of bones and the, the finger bones and stuff like that. But as far as nice cranium go um, or crania go, um, there's relatively few. And, and so when you read books about the history of paleoanthropology, that's really driven home well, is that the, um, we know so little and we know so much based on so little, which I think is really cool, really, really yeah. neat, you know? Well, something that, that goes towards Trust's question and also something that's 
why it's so fascinating to talk to someone like you is is um, it's it's a fascinating time for cryptozoology too, you know, or any sort of discovery because everybody's communicating more. And then in a lot of these situations, we're getting actual scientists, you know, and then and those those reports are being more easily communicated to other people and and just the general public. And it's interesting and and so fascinating. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm well, so excited. Few, I'm just jazzed to be here. <laughs> yeah, far too few because I'm not a scientist. I, I'm I'm a citizen scientist at best. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have the ear of a couple real scientists and I think that's mm -hmm. great. And I, I cherish those relationships and I learn a tremendous amount from them. At the end of the day, I'm a learner still, you know, I was an elementary school teacher before television grabbed me. Um, and teachers are, are generally good learners. We, that's what we enjoy doing. And so that's really my strength. Um, it's one of my strengths, I guess, um, being a fifth grade teacher, I'm also a good communicator, um, especially for the American public who generally has about a seventh grade reading level. So um, not slamming America here, but it's the truth. You know, it's not a great thing that we're not, we're seventh grade. You know, I mean, I don't know, but, um, uh, but I can, I can communicate rather complex ideas and, and into relatively simple words, you know, so everybody has, everybody can grasp the ideas. Everybody has the concept. I think that, I guess is another one of my things, um, superpowers, I guess. But um, too few scientists are involved in this, but it doesn't take, it, you don't necessarily have to have real scientists, like, like PhDs and stuff at universities. Um, it helps, um, and there are certainly a lot of um, university scientists who are interested in the subject, but aren't ready to say much about it yet. You know, either they're not completely convinced um, or uh, they're open to it, but like waiting to be convinced by something better, which I think is where we most people should be, honestly, um, yes. to accept something wholeheartedly without evidence. That, that's a belief system and belief does damage to science. A lot of times um, you should always doubt yourself, always doubt what you think, always try to prove yourself wrong and to see if the evidence can prove you wrong. You know, and that's a success if you do. You know, it's great. That, maybe that's why I like science so much is because it's yeah. one of the only subjects that I could be wrong in. And that's a victory because I'm wrong all the time. You know, um, it sure helps. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think it's really interesting that a number of PhDs that I personally know that are very interested in the subject that were very willing to listen to what I have to say or take my call or write correspond via email, but aren't ready to be public about it yet. You know, this mm -hmm. it's an exciting thing to witness because that means the evidence is approaching an appropriate level, you know, that uh, the evidence is compelling to those who know far more than I do. Um, you know, I'm just a grunt. I'm out there in the woods trying to cast stuff. You know, I'm trying to bring evidence to people. I'm trying to do the best job I can to represent the subject um, for those academics. You know, I'm a communicator to the I'm a science communicator to the public where well, people think, like Dr. Meldrum is to the academics. Yeah, well, I think we that's that. kind of where I was going with my pointless uh, <laughs> point earlier, um, <laughs> was that the scientific method is now being used more and more frequently. And people like you, you do use more of a scientific method when you're out uh, looking for evidence and when you're analyzing. Yeah, I'm not sure. That, I'm not, you know, I might not totally agree with that. Um, like I certainly advocate for the scientific method being mm -hmm. used. I certainly advocate for that, but I'm not sure it's being used more uh, because I see that I see quite the opposite happening. Honestly, really? okay. I, it, 
yeah, and maybe that's just because it really irks me. Um, but uh, like I've, I've pretty much abandoned social media at this point. I've got a face. I have to have a Facebook um, and right. our Instagram and all that other Twitter nonsense and stuff. Um, but I also have a Cliff one, a museum one, and and I've, uh, probably a podcast one. But I never look at, you know. And so I kind of have to because of that. That's the way I I, I scratch my living. Um, but man, I'll tell you, I've pretty much abandoned it all because on there, um, you either have like the there's two big camps that really that really get to me. One is the scoff dick, you know, where um, there just whatever is brought out, the person, the, the the evidence, the whatever is immediately dragged through the mud and and you know tarred and feathered and run off essentially um, without yeah. giving it a proper due, in my opinion. But there's also the whole paranormal side of things that I think is doing real damage to the subject itself. Um, to advocate that Sasquatches are UFO riding, shape-shifting, interdimensional, whatevers, does a lot of damage and keeps those very scientists that we want to look into the subject away from the subject, you know? Mm. Um, and, and, and I don't, and it seems to me that um, people are going more that direction now than ever. Um, mm -hmm. See, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I was the weirdest guy in the room because I thought an undiscovered species of ape was in North America. But now, like, literally, I, I'm, I'm like the most like uh, most conservative person in the room, you know, because because the other people are having like faith healing sessions with invisible Bigfoots that go through interdimensional portals and stuff like that, which makes all of us look look foolish, frankly, you know. So I'm seeing the, the paranormal thing taking over Bigfoot in a way that is alarming and deeply concerning. Um, it is legitimately doing real damage to the subject. Now, of course, you guys run a paranormal podcast here, so I'm yeah. sure I'm ruffling some feathers, but honestly, I don't care. But here, but yeah. let, me, let me say this, okay? Let me say this, that uh, I think that we can all agree on a couple of things. We mm. want academics and scientists to take the subject seriously, right? I, I, I think no matter where you are in the Bigfoot scale, that's a reasonable statement that I, I think the majority of people would probably agree with. And I also think that what I said earlier, by advocating that kind of thing right off the bat, drives them away. I think that is also a very reasonable statement that would be hard to argue with. Um, if Sasquatches are like that, which I certainly don't think they are, uh, there's no evidence for that. I've been doing it for a long time. I've never had any, never once have I had an encounter, and I've seen a Sasquatch. I've never once had an encounter that would make me think there was anything going on but a perfectly normal animal. Never yeah. once, right? Um, but if they are any of those things, um, par paranormal in any way at all, when they're um, academically accepted, don't you think that's going to come out? Like, that, that's, it's going to come out. Like they can't hide that they can turn invisible forever, right? Or something like that. Um, maybe we should start with they're actually there instead yeah. of um, they're forest beings advocating for the greater good of humanity for the Anunnaki mm -hmm. who were here under the great god Tiamat sun that will swoop by whatever nonsense. You know, maybe that's a safer way to proceed forward if we actually do want the academic attention that we are seeking in this subject. Otherwise, you're just building a religion. And frankly, there's too many religions already. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. This is a valid point you make. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I probably just think that there's more scientific method uh, applied to it just because that's what I've been reading lately. <laughs> like, well, I yeah, I guess it's where you put your attention, right? Yeah. yeah, project my own stuff into it. 
Um, I hope there is. I hope I'm wrong, but it just seems like we're backsliding into this weird dark age of Bigfoot where you can just say whatever you want. And, and like, and the paranormal people, they don't even agree with each other. But the one thing they can unite under is Cliff is a bad guy because he <laughs> thinks they're apes. Well, guess what? I think I'm an ape. I know I'm an ape, but that's my, you know, I'm a, I'm in, I'm in the genus homo, you know, homo sapiens. We're an ape species. Yeah. I, the, the one thing they can unite against is anybody who thinks that Sasquatches are animals. I'm an animal. What's so bad about that? Yeah. Well, uh, we agree with each other though. Well, no, it comes I, from the UFO. It comes from portals. It comes from inside the earth. They live in caves. They do this. No, no, no. <laughs> get, get, get your act together. Then come back and talk to me. I do enjoy the theories, the, the quantum theory, quantum physics theories that are pushed out there. But that's also because uh, I like seeing quantum physics and <laughs> Yeah. And it's an area that was un unknown to me. You know, somebody would say physics and I would go, ew. But now I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll read a couple of books on it. And that's a There's a wonderful book. book called Quantum Bullshit. Um, and it's written by a quantum oh, scientist um, who um, goes into the, uh, um, he calls it the New Age Movement's use of yeah. quantum and everything that they do. And he says that, uh, um, and he, he says, and I don't say this because I know a couple of people who are advocates of the quantum Bigfoot sort of idea, uh, mm -hmm. um, whatever else. He says that anybody who advocates for that, first of all, has no understanding of quantum physics whatsoever. And second of all, um, is, is trying to pull something on you, like trying to get your money somehow. Um, I don't know if that's true. Um, I know I know Ron Moorhead, who is the author of Quantum Bigfoot. I think he's yeah. incorrect, but I, I don't think Ron's trying to screw anybody. I think he's not trying to get your money, not trying to do any of that stuff. I think that Ron is looking for explanations for weird things that he's encountered. Um, I, I respect Ron. I like Ron a lot. I consider him a friend. Um, so I, I don't agree with the author of that book on that point. But it's a fascinating read because you're reading about the quantum use or the use of the quantum idea in in paranormal stuff and mm -hmm. he and this guy's a legit quantum physicist and um he, and he goes through all the reasons why all that stuff is malarkey um and I, I it's a really interesting read and it's easy to remember the title quantum bullshit and it's a wonderful book i just i finished reading it about two months ago yeah i saw that one when i was out looking for for beginner quantum physics <laughs> well you know because quantum physics was as you know, um, Einstein, Einsteinian physics, you know, I, I was a science, I mean, be, before Calculus 2 kicked my ass, I was um, going to major in physics and astronomy. Uh, but when Calculus 2 came about, I said, I don't want to do whatever that is. I don't want to do that for a living. Mm -hmm. So I decided not to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, quantum physics was the was trying to piece together the way things very, 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 very small things worked. You know, like the size of things, the size of galaxies, we have the Einsteinian physics and all that sort of stuff, um, which was a refinement on Newtonian physics. But um, all that stuff broke down when you talked about subatomic particles. So that's when they started piecing all that stuff together. Um, and as of this moment, there's no, why would you think that's, or not, not you, I'm not saying you do, but why would anybody <laughs> think that Sasquatches behave and follow the same rules of physics as subatomic particles um, as a whole? Now, the argument is like, well, they're made out of subatomic particles because where everything is, right? And I say, well, that I can't do it. Bears can't do it. Yeah, I, I like shift in and out of this and that, some dimensions and teleport and all that stuff. Why would you think any other animal can? You know, there are, people have seen Sasquatches take a dump. People have seen Sasquatches pee. People have seen Sasquatches scavenging on the side of the road for roadkill, digging through trash cans, d doing all the sort of biological things that, say, bears do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If Sasquatches were paranormal and super hyperdimensional and all this stuff, 
why would they be digging around for roadkill or going through trash cans? Wouldn't they just go to the like holodeck and order a steak sandwich? I just don't get it. You know, <laughs> maybe roadkill's delicious. Who knows? Yeah, no, no, no. Just, I've never tried it. <laughs> I know people who have, and it's just me. Oh. Mm. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, the idea of people trying to break down the unknown into yes. a science that they also do not know. And yeah, John Green commented on that. If you read the John Green books, which any Sasquatch advocate should, because he's one of the most important founding fathers of the subject, he says in there quite clearly, people, explaining one unknown with another gets you nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's all conjecture and theory, but it's fascinating stuff to think about. Yeah, we are. I, I think, you know, Bigfoots are fascinating enough. You don't need all that other stuff. <laughs> oh, I just, I just mean across the board. Just if oh, yeah, sure. be an explanation for something else, like okay, mm -hmm. right on. I think I'm just excited that my brain starts to work sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. rare. Uh, listen, we're at the end of the show. Do you? Tell us all the things where we can find you and yes, promote what you need and want to promote, please. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess the museum is the most <laughs> important thing, I suppose. You know, I mean, I'm not really into me, but I'm, I'm into the museum. Um, mm -hmm. North American Bigfoot Center. You can come visit. I think you'd enjoy it. I think everybody would enjoy it. Um, I specifically designed it to be enjoyed. Um, if you heard the first part of the podcast, I think we're doing some like moderately important things. Um, especially down the line when Sasquatches are proven to be real animals to everybody. I think that uh, what the work we're doing now could be foundational in some ways. Um, I'm hoping that, that, that that's what essentially ends up happening is that we serve some sort of purpose long after I'm dead. Um, that like people look back and say, you know, that NABC, that, that, that I'm glad they did that then because this stuff would be lost otherwise. Um, really? Yeah, so I don't know that I'm advocating for the museum because I, I, th I think that's the most important work that I've done. I mean, I've, the TV show was was uh, was was brief, although it was nine years and running. It was, it was a, a blip in my life. I think I'm doing more important things now. Yeah. I think that um, I know I'm having more fun now than I did then. I know I'm getting better and more Bigfoot evidence than I was then because um, television is shallow and superficial at best, you know, and take that from somebody who worked on TV for nine years. I know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, it, it, a lot, you can't trust most of it. Um, it, it and, but what, what we're doing now, you can trust, you know, I, I, cause we're out there in the trenches doing it boots on the ground. We're finding casts We're we're casting handprints. I think we got like six or eight handprints or actually more than that this year alone. Um, we're really making, we're really breaking ground, um, on all fronts. We're educating the public. We're finding those collections and we're using data to drive our own research and we're being successful at that. So um, I just pay attention to the museum. I, I'd like to think that some interesting things are going to be happening on this. I know they will this coming year yeah. and more. So that's that's exciting. I love all of that. Yeah. I have one question that I did not ask. You said 12 footprints in December. Yeah. How spread out was that? Like it uh, location wise? Yeah. Now, yeah, that's a good question. And then um, I know that like the scoptics will attack me for something like that because 12, that's unheard of, blah, blah, blah. It's basically, um, I went out on the fourth and I found two trackways of two different individuals that were about 60 yards apart. I have found these same individuals' footprints before in the same place. Um, and I cast two of the smaller individual and then um, two of the larger individual and I tried to get its handprint too, but it didn't work out. So I actually got five um, in that one time, that one on the 4th of December. I went out again 
I forget the date, probably the 12th or something like that, like the next week. Um, and we did not find anything there, but we went one drainage over and we found prints there. And I cast four more there. So that's nine. Wow. And then in the next two or three days, I, I told a buddy of mine who's working the same spot and he went out there and he says, Cliff, you missed one. So I said, okay, well, I better go out and check it out. I went out there on, that was the 29th of December, I think. Um, yeah. And then uh, I found the one that he said I missed, which is interesting because that's the one that actually brought me to the spot. We, we, we were aware of that one. I just forgot to cast it. Um, I got that one. It wasn't very good, although it turned out better than I thought. There were toes in the cast, but you couldn't see it in the dirt. So I got that one. So that's 10. And then that was a Friday, I remember. Saturday, that same guy called me, says, Cliff, I went back there. There's footprints everywhere. And I'm thinking, dude, you found my footprints because I was walking all over there. <laughs> and because that's the thing, this, this, we're tracking a 12 inch foot right now, and I've got 12 inch boots, you know? So, like, yeah. I, dude, I said, I, he goes, I don't think so. I go, well, you probably did because we're all over the place. And he showed me one of the casts and it had toes. And I went, yes. like, oh, yeah, you're right. So then I went back on the 31st and we found, yeah, sure enough, the thing had been there. That night, it, it was stepping on my own boot prints. So we went <laughs> that's that great. in. So when you really look at it, we only we only worked two locations, and we basically had three track finds. One of which was the day before. So we don't know when the other ones passed through. So you get twelve or however it might have been thirteen or fourteen. I don't really know. I forget. Um, it sounds like an awful lot, but when you really look at it, they were there in the area in yeah. this drainage and this drainage. The next one over. And yeah. we got four or five prints or so when we found their footprints. Because I'm not the kind of guy that if there's more than one track in the ground, I'm going to cast everyone I can. Yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, th so it sounds like that's a, like, oh, that's a ridiculous amount. That couldn't possibly never happen. Well, actually, it does happen if you go there and, and you mind, and you don't mind casting really terrible looking casts in the ground. Most of these look like big blobs of plaster that you can't see any detail. But. Remember, I said that one that brought us back there, I couldn't see toes in the mud. But when I cast it, you mm -hmm. could see toes in the print, in the cast itself. So sometimes you can't see all the detail with your eyes when you're looking at it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the, the impression in the ground looks a lot better than the cast turns out. So I always do both. I, I look, I photograph from every angle, and I also cast. So 12 That's or 14 great. prints in December. Basically, you're looking at two and two or three track finds. You know, which is a great month. That's huge. That's yeah. huge. But it, 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 you know, you hear twelve or fourteen casts, and you go, "What? What? That's that can't possibly be." Well, when you're casting four or six at a time, it is. I find that more impressive because anytime I hear about a cast, it's one single footprint. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's reasons for that. I mean, maybe that maybe there's only one. I've certainly been to a place where I found a footprint, and the, the other stuff mm -hmm. was just scuffs in the ground. You couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that does happen. Sometimes people just mistake something in the ground for a print because it looks like it. I've done that before. Anybody who's been in the woods doing this for a while has done that before, and it's okay. You know, that, that's why you cast them, to see if you can make sense out of them later. Yeah. Um, and people make mistakes all the time, including myself, you know, all the time. I, I, don't, I can't think of one track find this year, and I've had, like, a really good year. Uh, I can't think of one track find this year that I didn't make some mistakes at, you know? I mean, wow. Faster. What are you going to do, right? <laughs> in the ground. Yeah. I cannot wait to go to the museum. Uh, mm. It's also going to be the first time that I'm going to be at Olympic National Park. Oh, it's, uh, the Olympics are great. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm I'm absolutely tremendously excited. We're going to do that right before the the Bigfoot Fest, and then we're going to come see the museum. It's going to be the best trip ever. It really is. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you here next week. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.